Again, Cinema Journal presents Acamedia. Acamedia. Oh, Acamedia. Okay. Yeah. It's all. It just seems like it's been. It's been ages since we've been here. I feel like I've been in a coma or something. It's just I don't. I don't know where the last month or two went. And you know the thing is, I have been having the weirdest dreams. Really, me too. Totally crazy. I didn't want to say anything because mine are like so weird. You know, I didn't want you to think I'm you know losing my mind or something, but. Yeah, I had this crazy dream that uh, Amanda Lotz was like president of CBS and soliciting ideas and like calling up academics to get TV show ideas, um, developing a show about SCMS. But the problem was no one was in SCMS anymore. Like Jason Mattel was off running a meth lab. Oh, no, that was in my dream too. Wait, what? Really? Yeah, no, they're, they're totally. I, Jason Mattel was running a meth lab in my dream. And then it was like always snowing. Hmm. Like it was like, like outside or in a snow globe. It was totally a snow globe thing. It was really strange. And then, um, and then I kind of like, you know, it, you know, like on Wayne's World when everything when there'd be like a transition moment and he'd go, and then all of a sudden, Henry Jenkins came walking out of a shower carrying the snow globe with Jason in the meth lab. Oh my god, that's so crazy! And then, and and I woke up like next to my Twitter as if I, you know, hadn't used it in, in forever. And I picked it up, and for some reason felt urged to go find uh, some Kevin Heffernan Brony memes. Like okay, what? I, I, I don't know which is weirder, Kevin Heffernan and the Brony memes, or what does it mean to wake up next to your Twitter? I don't, I don't even know. <laughs> that's really, it's a little off. Sorry. <laughs> I think we should maybe just forge onward, forget everything in the past, and just. Assume everything's fine and I'm carry sure everything's on. fine. Okay. We're going forward. And well, I don't know what's up with Bill. Um, he's out there somewhere. Um, Bill. Bill. All right, let's just carry on. All I'm right, sure carrying on. So what have we Bill's, got lined up? We've got um, some really great media studies content here. Uh, wow. First of all, I have an interview with Mary Beltran about her new Cinema Journal article on uh, the Fast and Furious series, specifically Fast and Furious Four. And the concept of racelessness and um, and Latino audiences and so on and so forth. So we've got that. And then we have a guest report, an ACA Media on Location report from Jennifer Proctor on this year's UFVA conference and what the UFVA organization is all about. So I think we've got um, some good stuff ahead to get ourselves back on track. Excellent. Actual content. Actual content with real media studies scholars. Mary Beltran is an associate professor of radio, television, film at the University of Texas, where she specializes in critical race studies and television and film studies. She also is a faculty affiliate of UT's Center for Mexican-American Studies and Center for Women's and Gender Studies. Her research is focused on the construction of race, class, and gender in U.S. television, film, and celebrity culture with an emphasis on Latina, Latino, and mixed race representation and how media text and producers articulate and challenge social hierarchies and group identities. She's the author of Latina, Latina, Stars in U.S. Eyes, The Making and Meanings of Film and TV Stardom from University of Illinois Press, and co-editor of the book Mixed Race Hollywood from NYU Press. She's currently working on a book manuscript called Post-Race Pop, Interrogating Racelessness in Millennial Media Culture, and she's published two articles in Cinema Journal on that concept of racelessness in Hollywood, specifically in regard to the Fast and the Furious blockbuster franchise, with one article in a 2005 Cinema Journal issue and one in the current issue of Cinema Journal. Mary, uh, thank you for joining Acamedia today. Well, thank you for inviting me. Uh, I was wondering if you could first take us through the argument of your current Cinema Journal article titled Fast and Bilingual, Fast and Furious and the Latinization of Racelessness. I began to be interested in this, this particular topic when I learned about the success of Fast and Furious, the fourth film in the Fast franchise in 2009, when I learned that the opening weekend when it was the, the top film in the national 
um, in national box office, I learned that this was in part uh, due to the large uh, numbers of Latinos that were going to see it opening weekend. And actually, they comprised 46% of that opening weekend box office. So I, I found that intriguing, and I had also done research on the very first film in that franchise back in 2000, which had also ended up being a cinema journal um, publication. And in that earlier version, I was especially interested in the fact that the film had you know a mixed race star in Vin Diesel, and that it also was presenting this sort of multicultural ensemble cast, and to some degree seemed to be doing some different things with race, and had also been been pretty successful. You know, I was curious to see how Latino characters and cultural themes were perhaps being used in this fourth version that would have resulted in such a large Latino audience. So my research involved talking to the director who had been working on the franchise for several of the last films, Justin Lin. I was able to do a few interviews with him. And I also looked at, as much as I could find information, I wanted to look at the production and um, the marketing of the film in terms of how elements of Latinidad might be incorporated into the film. It did include a number of Latino actors, and then also two reggaeton stars were incorporated as characters in the film for the first time in this, this uh, fourth installment of the film. And, you know, the marketing, I think, reflected also the film studio's growing awareness about how to successfully market to Latinos. And also another kind of through line or another thread of the research in this this article was looking at that question of racelessness or the term I came up with in looking at that first film. I was curious to know, you know, the sort of multicultural or utopic multiculturalism, how that might have been intertwined with this greater emphasis on uh, Latino cultures in this specific installment. It's a complicated project. And I found some, some specific ways in which Latino characters and themes were incorporated this time, in particular in relation to um, what I call a bilingual aesthetic to the marketing and within the film itself. The character of Dominic Toretto, who was played by Vin Diesel, you know, this is the first time that Vin Diesel came back to the franchise. And there's a unique kind of transformation that his character has undergone. You know, we, we know at the end of the very first film that he has to leave to avoid being caught by law enforcement. And, and so we learn that he's been in Latin America. He now speaks Spanish and seems to have taken on a much more of a fluid racial identity. There are also the two characters played by Tego Calderon and Don Omar. They speak primarily in Spanish during the film, and uh, Justin Lin chose to have them speak in Spanish with subtitles so all viewers can still be in touch with what they're saying and their humor and their intelligence. So there are a number of things happening in which, you know, also cultural values that have often been associated with Latinos, such as putting family first, you know, really uh, having much more of a sense of the community as just as important as individual uh, progress. Um, these are, you know, I think some story elements that Justin Lin added in that I don't think he intended to necessarily be associated with Latinos, just based on my interviews with him, I think he meant for it to really call to mind the idea of maybe working class families or immigrant families and the values that they might hold. So there, there are unique things happening that do actually disappear in the later installments of the franchise. Before we move on, let's just listen to a quick clip from Fast and Furious. All right, we're good to go. Got this. Bet your ass, Bubba. Mm. Let's make some money. Everyone in position. I thought we'd be robbing banks by now. That's some gas truck in the middle of nowhere. Down here, gas is gold, Papa. Sí, pero los fucking bancos no se mueven, ¿sabes? Dile que la última vez que te fuiste a robar un banco te tuvimos que sacarte preso. Kill the chatter, game time. I wouldn't piss them off, guys.
Ahí yo estoy. Toma. Yes. Hey. Una comelona. Okay, guys, we're gonna have to hit this hard and fast. We got 4K left before the downgrade. One thing I really appreciated reading the article is the range of research you're doing. You know, you're doing reception research, you're doing formal analysis, you're doing production research. And so, for instance, you brought up that notion of class and how in your interview with Lynn, he brought up thinking about this through working class lens. And I thought that was a really revealing uh, notion, really helpful research as a way to kind of understand what you're seeing on screen, hearing what someone behind the scenes was thinking, which kind of then kind of expand the scope that you came to it as a researcher. It was a lucky thing that I was actually able to do those interviews. I do feel like they really expanded the kind of way I was able to interpret what I was seeing. Yeah, it was a helpful sort of comeuppance as a scholar to remember that we can, you know, stake all of our scholarship on the kinds of things that we really want to find. Of course, particularly in the case of doing media studies, it's it's also all in the eyes of the beholder at times. And unless we're doing an audience study, we may find that the directors and producers completely disagree with what we as scholars think is being communicated. So it was very, very helpful to be able to talk with um, Justin about the film. And you mentioned your earlier uh, 2005 Cinema Journal article. And so I'm intrigued by basically through your research and even in particular through your Cinema Journal publications, we've got a really valuable analytical account over a near decade period of time about this idea of Latino images and, and racelessness, that concept in Hollywood. So I'm curious if you could give us a little bit of that long-term scope you feel as a researcher, and in particular, the most recent post that you wrote for the Postscripts and Afterthoughts essay on the SEMS website, which we'll w- link to on our website, where you, in light of those subsequent Fast and Furious releases, that finds you kind of tempering a little bit of maybe earlier optimism about a genuine Latino perspective being incorporated into mainstream studio releases. So I'm curious then if you were, if you sort of think about where you were when you were first starting this research in the early 2000s, are you more pessimistic than you were then in terms of seeing these same challenges and tensions recurring, or is there anything to be optimistic about going forth? It's a a really uh, great question and and a challenging question. Um, And it actually reminds me, too, that I didn't really fully address the main points that I had made in 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 the essay that's now in Cinema Journal regarding this issue of racelessness and the fact that, you know, I was talking in particular about the ways in which I did see some incorporation of Latino cultural themes and characters. But it actually, I mean, that happens in a way that is actually competing with, I think, the primary thrust of the narrative, which is about ostensibly white heroes still. And one, one of them actually being still Dominic Toretto, as played by Vin Diesel. And in the first essay, I was talking about the fact that casting mixed race actors in roles as, as heroes, and, and in, particularly when it's done in a way in which we might sometimes question their racial identities, I think it can destabilize some of the traditional paradigms of race in Hollywood that always posited the hero as as unambiguously white and non-white characters um, were never really going to have the same kind of efficacy as as characters so I think that that can get destabilized but I mean one of the caveats and it's a pretty big caveat of that dynamic is that we might read that character differently every person some some of us might view that character as as mixed race others might view that character as white and unless the storyline is really helping us to um, view that character as non-white, you know, to some degree it could be argued that, that nothing is really changing. 
Now, it gets even more complicated, I think, when we have an aesthetic of multiculturalism through the casting of other actors and um, storylines that are borrowing cultural elements from other cultures and the construction of a sort of, whether it's a sort of utopic multiculturalism or a more troubled multiculturalism. But these kinds of films and TV shows that I've talked about as multiculti, um, a part of a multiculti cycle, they tend to kind of play with ideas of race and foreground ethnic ambiguity and racial ambiguity. But typically this is more of a, you know, on a kind of surface structure. And then and if you were to look deeper, it, it's easy to see that many people still might view this as a story of white heroes who happen to be portrayed as very culturally tolerant because they're surrounding themselves maybe with non-white characters and and they may be defending non-white characters as I talk about in the second essay. So racelessness is a kind of a slippery aesthetic that if anything sometimes can, you know, I I was just actually teaching on this in class today. Uh, My students read an essay by Sarah Benet Weiser called um, What's Your Flavor? And she's, she's writing in 2003 about these dolls that Mattel put out in 2003 called Flava, Flava dolls. And they were they had different skin tones, but the models for their faces were exactly the same. And they were kind of just you know, using some slightly different skin tones to make it seem really urban and hip. And ultimately, it wasn't really about racial difference but more about a kind of commodification of diversity. And so I think it's a, a similar kind of dynamic that is, seems to be prevalent in the Fast franchise. And um, if anything, you know, I feel like Justin Lin was trying to do something at a deeper level. You know, when, when I interviewed him, you know, he was the person who happened to cast Tego Calderon and Don Omar. He didn't just want to pay lip service to diversity. You know, he, he actually said a lot of there were um, any number of agents who were representing actors and performers of color. Like they all wanted to be seen by him. And he wasn't just interested in casting someone just because they're non-white. He, he was really interested in creating character and having narratives that made sense in terms of the diversity of the characters and what their motivations would be. And then he wanted the performers he did cast to be able to really be themselves and that he would create the characters kind of based on, on that. So kind of, and sometimes he was, I think, telling them to sort of do your thing. Don't feel like you have to speak in English. Don't feel like you need to put on a different accent. Just be yourself. So he he was really unhappy with the first film and I think wanted to do something very different that was richer and and, uh, that really would create characters of, you know, characters of color that audiences would really find exciting and interesting. And he told me, uh, you know, like apparently there's there's so much um, audience testing that's done, you know, to try to determine which characters would be the most popular he said that um, executives were very surprised to learn that the character of Han, played by Song Kang, was extremely popular with audiences around, you know, very diverse audiences, and that the mostly white executives just didn't expect it. I just, I think he, he was just seeing things in a, in a different way than the typical director. So I, I don't know what will happen with the franchise now. It'll be interesting to see. Well, that seemed like a really key point in your article about the idea of how a Taiwanese-American director who comes in with a genuine interest in making a diverse film can really have an impact on what ends up on screen. And that seems like an ongoing issue for Hollywood, the idea of the lack of diversity, as you say, in executive offices, in director's chairs, in, in writer's rooms. And that seems like... A, something, you know, scholars like yourself have been pointing out for a while now, that there is a a need for genuine diversity on screen that has to be accompanied by genuine diversity off screen. I think there's some progressive potential in having more diverse writers and and directors. It's a tricky thing when it comes to media products like films today that are so expensive to make that studio personnel are very, very unwilling to give up control of creative decisions to the director, at least that's what I was learning uh, from Justin Lin, that he he was, you know, given gradually 
a little more control with each film. You know, and he, he was lucky that each film was successful. There were battles that he lost as well. So, you know, I do think there's a real need for a much more diverse group of filmmakers and television producers. I'd like to see more women as well. It does seem like anytime you have a tentpole film, even the best of directors, you know, or the most experienced of directors are still actually given very little creative control. You know, when it comes to a franchise, I don't know that narrative even, <laughs> I just don't even know that that, that a well-developed narrative ends up being a part of the motivation, you know, let alone um, really respectful and encouraging portrayals of people of color and but I do think the films did improve in, in certain respects in the franchise, in part because of the perspective of Justin Lin. That's also tied into the idea of marketing, too, because you raise the idea of um, how these films try to market toward a um, particular audience. And throughout what you're saying, this idea of essentially audi- a minority audience in particular get looked at as commodities um, to be packaged. And, so, and you talked about there's this assumption that the studios have that they can only market to uh, Latino audiences through Spanish language language outlets or with only Latino-specific popular culture. Um, But you write, uh, quote, it appears the primary unifying trait of young Latino media consumers is a hybridity of interest, language, and cultural preferences. So, you know, is is this another thing that just Hollywood is always going to look at audiences in this sort of commodified way, and that's going to, again, perpetuate these kind of assumptions rather than breaking out and sort of assuming your target audience is people rather than a little marketable checkbox? You no, know, I'm, I'm very curious to see the next 10 years because I think we're going to see what those trends will be, especially given the really large population of Latino youth in the country. I might have statistics in the essay, I'm not sure, that one out of every five Americans under 18 are Latino and one out of every four American children under five are Latino. So, you know, in 10 years, the youth population is going to be incredibly diverse and particularly in relation to Latinos. At the same time, there seem to be, you know, a lot of misconceptions still in how to appeal to Latino viewers. And also, I think regarding whether non-Latinos will watch Latino main characters, whether non-Latinos will tolerate Spanish with, with subtitles, So I'm curious to see how that will develop. And a good 75% of of Latinos are watching quite a bit of English language media. So it just seems like a missed opportunity at some point if they're even just thinking about profit potentials. Well, that reminded me also the recent case of just, I think it was uh, last week of the USA Today headline about how well Best Man Holiday had done at the box office. The initial headline was, you know, Best Man Holiday joins, uh, you know, popular race-themed movies at the box office, as if Best Man Holiday is race-themed, right? It's not. It has nothing to do with race. It's about a group of people having fun. And so, but anything with a minority lead cast gets classified as that that's other, right? That's for black audiences or for that's, that's for Latino audiences when in fact its themes are universal, but it, it's sort of that keeps getting perpetuated in the media. And I can see the same thing happening with the Latino media that you're talking about as well. Right. Yeah. And I, I have no proof of it, but I actually wondered if executives were worried about the fast franchise seeming too Latino and that might have been a reason why I think the next film is set. It's it's set in a whole other part of the world, and so it's too it's too bad. There seems. I mean, if we look back in television to a show like The Cosby Show, there wasn't a fear, or didn't seem like they they were operating on the fear that it was going to be seen as too black because it was about a black family. But we've definitely moved into a new era in television in which ethnic themed comedies that are not white are viewed as too ethnic or too separatist. And there's a push instead to go more towards these multicultural ensemble casts, usually revolving around white stars. So it's a it's an interesting time. And then of course if one of the actors is mixed race like Vin Diesel, it gets a little more confusing uh, regarding what kind of appeal they, they you know, he has, and if we may, some of us may be watching him and identifying in different ways based on viewing him in a different way. Yeah, you mentioned television. I wanted to follow up with you about that, too. Um, in your postscript essay, you talk a little bit about FX is the bridge. Yeah. And, and I presume you have some similar concerns about network and cable television in the, in the ways you've been talking. But there's also some interesting recent developments. And, and again, maybe this idea of 
some missed opportunities, perhaps, once you recognize what can be successful. So Univision's ratings rise over the past couple of years have really been striking. Um, They had a July sweeps win for the first ever time. And there's also the new fusion venture between Univision and ABC News that targets English-speaking Latino millennials. So do you see those as progressive signs? I mean, I think they're all part of certainly a recognition and a desire to reach Latino viewers. You know, the Spanish language networks, I think, at times are responding to awareness that they're not always reaching the younger generation. And so I think at times we're seeing series that are being created that may try to incorporate more of a focus on things that might be of interest to young people. I don't think any one of these networks can get can really reach all all Latino viewers, though, because they're so different, you know, not only in terms of language preferences, but I think, you know, in part that there still is a fairly sizable portion of Latinos that are that are first generation immigrants, about a third. They are the audience that's more likely um, turning to Spanish language television at the same time as we have Latinos that are very acculturated and take in, you know, all kinds of English language television and um, may sometimes watch some Spanish language TV, but they would be more likely to watch, you know, a character like Hurley on on Lost when that was still on the air than to perhaps be watching a a telenovela. So it's going to be an interesting thing. It is an extremely diverse um, population, but it does seem like studies are showing that the most successful marketing approaches are usually ones that have a variety of uh, approaches and, and that try to reach out to Latinos in both languages, in different outlets, in different communities. So it is a complicated thing. Any final reflections on where you see the Fast and Furious franchise going from here? It was interesting to have a chance to write the Afterthoughts essay particularly given how quickly new installments of the Fast franchise have come out. And um, I remember really enjoying the fifth um, installment, which did still include the the reggaetoneros in a a smaller um, role. But then the sixth film seems to have really, they've they've taken another turn. And so I think it, it, it was just an interesting thing to see and to see that emphasis on Latino characters really diminished by that sixth film. Um, I wish I could get inside the studio offices to understand why. And I mean, and they're, they're very meticulous, of course, about their audience testing and in terms of tracking what the demographics are of the audience of the prior installments. And so they already know when they go into it that, oh, we'll probably get 30% Latinos, we'll probably get 15% you know, African-American. So that's an interest. it's just an interesting thing to consider then in relation to what we end up seeing on the screen. And perhaps it might show how little effort they feel they have to go to sometimes to bring in non-white Americans. In the case of this film, you know, Justin Lin mentioned that, you know, the, the car culture was seen as a lot of what would bring in Latinos and African Americans and Asian Americans into uh, see the film. And I think that that, that can prove true, but I I wonder, though, if there's no attempt to construct characters to identify with, still, if they still actually are only really getting a small percentage of what they could at the box office, if they would actually think to put more time and energy into really creating characters that, that people could get excited about. And so I, I'm curious. I, I, I think things are going downhill, but we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, maybe we'll have another Cinema Journal article from you in five years. We'll follow up and see where things are at. Well, I, you might, but I, I, um, it may be time for the franchise to uh, admit they've done what they can. We'll see. All right, great. Well, thank you so much for your time, Mary. Thank you very much, Chris. Yo! Tengo Calderón. That was a great interview, Chris. Thank you. I had a really good time talking to her. And I do want to urge our listeners to go ahead and and follow up and take a look at Mary Beltran's Postscript essay. 
on this topic. Yeah, I'm really proud of that whole series, the Postscripts and Afterthoughts series, where we ask Cinema Journal authors to write, you know, 1,000, 1,500 word follow-ups on their uh, Cinema Journal essays. You know, it takes so long, publishing does, and maybe two years since you submitted an article and then it actually comes out. And so you have additional thoughts, you have additional research you've done, you've got kind of wider um, scope on things. And so Mary's, I thought, was really interesting as a follow-up to what subsequent Fast and Furious um, films have done. And also, they're all great, but uh, the other one that really stood out to me um, this uh, in in this group was Michael Harris's postscript where he talks about the late Donald Ritchie and him as a, a research inspiration. And that's a really, to me, a really profound essay about... Um, and all of these essays really kind of open up a conversation about what we do as academics that uh, sort of really getting behind the scenes of what motivates us to do this research. Yeah, I absolutely agree, uh, both about the general principle and about the Michael Harris essay. It's a really, mm-hmm. really thoughtful piece. And in fact, I think uh, I can tease that we will probably uh, be featuring a conversation with Michael Harris, very soon. Oh, fantastic. Things to look yeah. forward to. Um, well, you have something to look forward to right now in the coming moment. And this is a piece from Jennifer Proctor. She actually approached us before she attended the uh, UFVA conference this year and asked if we would want a piece. And we said, sure, we would love to have a piece on that. So she put together this really fantastic report for us. This past summer, the University Film and Video Association gathered at Chapman University in Orange County for its 67th annual conference. UFVA is one of a small handful of academic organizations devoted to media practice. In this report, I'll provide an overview of UFVA's missions and goals, as well as highlight some of the themes and trends from this year's conference. In the interest of full disclosure, by the way, I'm a member of the UFVA's board of directors. The conference, which draws around 500 attendees, typically runs around 12 tracks of programming, including juried papers, juried and peer-reviewed screenings, a new media exhibition and script readings with respondents, and technical workshops on topics like how to set up and run a Foley stage. When you're doing Foley, yes, you're trying to reproduce reality, but you're also dealing with people who are used to seeing the Hollywood experience. So sometimes reality isn't the right thing. So a lot of times in Foley, we're using deliberately the wrong thing to create what is right for that moment in that movie for an audience to react to. Papers at the conference include theoretical essays on scholarly topics, but the focus tends towards pedagogy. Students come to us, to our production classes specifically, and even our theory, and certainly our theory classes, with a uh, understanding of the visual language unlike students of earlier generation because they spent so much time already watching it. So, is there a better way to teach them? Just in time, it's a business concept that was uh, started by Henry Ford. So using that as a um, pedagogical uh, foundation and applying it to teaching the arts and the technique of filmmaking, uh, I developed this just-in-time instruction. What I hope to do with this is to introduce concepts and methods as needed, rather than front-loading the semester with a bunch of information. Discussions about trends in the industry. And so, that's the TV. It's trying to de-judder Alfred Hitchcock's vertigo and make it smoother in theory. Look at her. She looks like she's shot on video. And that terrified me. And ways to incorporate trends in the industry into pedagogy. Our programs are a little bit study abroad, a little bit service learning. We take emerging filmmakers, um, some of your students probably, into developing countries and teach them to make short documentaries about what we call change makers. And change makers are always Grassroots organizations, either nonprofits or social entrepreneurs that are innovating in the social or the environmental sector. Norman Holland is a professor and head of the editing track at the University of Southern California and UFVA president. According to our bylaws, the mission of UFVA is to advance the scholarship of faculty and students in the, I guess you could say, film profession, but I really take a look at it in cinematics. So, uh, Our job is to, in many, many different ways, uh, advance the pedagogy as well as the actual content itself. Our conference right now especially is a major focus of the organization. It's a way that we have multi-track programming 
with multi-multi types of interest. Uh, we're a, a highly production-oriented environment, even though we do have uh, a large number of cinema studies people. Uh, we also uh, have people who have to do all of it because there are some small schools. There's a lot of small schools from small uh, locations. So uh, what, what we try and do at the conference is to present papers, panels, and screenings that help to push forward two things. One is our understanding of uh, where our craft, uh, where our studies are moving and the way in which we teach them. And then the second thing, an opportunity for people to present all of those things in a way that will help with their promotion tenure uh, as well as annual reviews. Joe Brown, professional in residence at Marquette University and UFVA board member. I'd say one of the most valuable things about the conference in my mind is that when you come to the conference you get a chance to talk to people who are working in different areas than you are, people who are outside of your own department, maybe thinking about things differently, um, whether they're working in your area or another area, so you're always being exposed to new ideas. One example today for me uh, was the interactive storytelling panel I participated in, and uh, I'm a documentarian, I'm really interested in working in interactive documentary. I'd like to do that in the future. I just finished an MFA in documentary film, and we weren't quite getting into the, the interactive documentary realm, but you come to the conference and you start hearing about people in different places thinking along these lines, and it really invigorates you and excites you. So I think the interplay of ideas and the inspiration that comes out of it is probably one of the most important things. With the conference set just miles from Hollywood and right at the heart of Disney headquarters, the annual conference picnic, by the way, took place at downtown Disney, it's unsurprising that this year's theme was story first. Although some non-narrative practitioners at the conference quibbled with this choice, other themes emerged during the week that university production programs are grappling with across approaches. Again, Norman Holland. I think a lot of the things that are popping up, I've noticed popping up several times over the last few years. But it's uh, technology is moving super fast outside, and I don't even know how to keep up with how we teach that, what's important for our students looking forward to four years later when they graduate, what's going to be important for them to know. And the key big thing on top of all of that is we have less money to do more with. Uh, every year. So how do we do more with less, I think, is the overarching theme. But that's no different than last year. The year before, we're all petrified about how to give our students a great experience, a great education, prepare them for what they want to do in an artistic as well as a professional way, whether it's as filmmakers or as teachers of uh, cinema when they leave. Uh, so I think that I I've noticed that as a recurring image both in the papers panels but also in the hallways so for me a large part of what we do is build relationships among schools that we really only are in contact with face-to-face -face here at the conference um, so I always say that most of the really cool stuff that happens happens in the hallway uh, so I hear a lot about that worry uh, it's like, how do I keep up when I don't even have money for professional development in my school? Michael Mulcahy, associate professor at the University of Arizona and outgoing conference vice president. What is the single uh, most important direction that our field's moving in? And I don't think anybody knows that, but I do think that we are fundamentally in a different space in terms of film and television and video now than we were 15 years ago. I think we have completed some kind of evolutionary turn um, but we are so close to it that it's difficult to tell. But the uh, conference host, Bob Bassett, said that when he was in college, that the aspiration was to write the great American novel. And then he said that that aspiration is turned to making the great American film. Um, and actually, I think that aspiration of making the great American film has now passed. And I do not think anymore it is that. I, I think it is something else. And I think the internet and digital technologies in combination with a fundamentally changed society are leading us in some different, I think more fragmented direction, but um, a direction nevertheless. And I, I, and I don't know, 
I don't know. It's it's an exciting time to 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 be active. Again, Joe Brown. Yeah, and I would say that uh, one of the some of the ideas or themes that seem to be popping out of the conference in my mind or that are grabbing my attention include the hybridization of media, which was talked about a little bit in the keynote. At least talking about the interplay of fiction and nonfiction. So you have hybrid films, transmedia, as they like to call it, and interactive storytelling. And I really appreciate our constant return to the idea that story comes first. And this may be an unpopular thing to say. When we are always insisting on returning to the idea of story first, I wonder if it indicates that we don't know where things are going, so we don't know what else to talk about. Um, So it's true that there are so many pieces that are being made today, shorts and YouTube videos and such, that maybe um, don't adhere to the, the classical structure of uh, Greek storytelling or something like this, uh, and, and that might be a cause for concern, but um, I don't know that we know how to talk about what is going on now, and, um, and so maybe that's why we're grasping, on, grasping to the tradition, uh, because we're trying to ride through these, these changes. Media production can at times be a strange bedfellow to more traditional pursuits in the academic setting, with different sets of tenure expectations, different criteria for evaluation, and different ideas of what constitutes academic rigor. These tensions can percolate up as the organization strives to bring practice and theory together in its conference sessions. I personally don't like the perception that the, you know, that there's a separation between practice and theory. Tony Perrine, professor at Grand Valley State University and UFVA member. UFVA is a place that can really make sure that those two things stay integrated, but we have to take the studies part as seriously as many people do the the practice industry part. And the reason that I like UFVA and have continued to come, even though I'm a film studies person, is that for my program and what we're trying to accomplish which is a production program, it's more like what we do at my school. So it has lots of stuff on pedagogy and lots of stuff, of course, on production, but it also has film studies and it has, you know, so it really tries to incorporate all elements of what we try to do in our program. Again, Michael Mulcahy. To make something, you never make it in a void. Or at least this is the challenge, I think, for us as teachers. We don't want our students to make something in a void. You know, um, I teach production classes, and I find that students are either resistant to or impatient with sort of learning theory. They, you know, and and I've heard more than once and seen more than once written down. You know, um, the the best thing about our education is when we do hands-on labs, and yet nothing that is made is made in a vacuum. It's always made within this larger theoretical. Context, and I actually think that's probably where there is more of an overlap between theory and practice. You know, the the, um, the two need to exist with each other. Um, theory without practice is, is is maybe ultimately abstract. Practice without theory is is you know is a, is either anarchy or chaos or or um, um, I don't know. Just plain bad. <laughs> <laughs> um. Making films in a university setting is considered to be a very odd thing to do. It is the single uh, biggest sort of entertainment product that there is in the world. You know, it is the chief export of the United States, um, or it's the chief way that our culture, our cultural export goes out, television and film. So it's, it's seemingly the oddest, least suitable place to practice filmmaking. And so it creates oftentimes very awkward kinds of, of um, juxtapositions. But there, there is actually a tension. There's a tension between people who make their living professionally, and by professional, you go out, you get paid to operate a camera or, or write a script or cut a piece of film, as opposed to people who practice it in the academy um, and, and oftentimes have a stronger sort of academic and, and theoretical background. And negotiating those two sorts of um, paths is actually not that easy. And yet, um, it can be, for many people, um, a great place to make work. Next year, UFVA will be held at Montana State University in Bozeman. For more information, visit ufva.org. 
So that was really fantastic work, and we thank Jennifer Proctor again for taking the time to do that, and it was really um you know, excellent, really good information. And we do want to say if anyone else has uh, similar ideas, if you're attending a conference or uh, you can interview someone that might be of interest to us, let us know. Absolutely. We love working with stringers and and we pay really, really well. We do. You should you should see how fancy our bunker is. We have just money coming out of our ears. Yeah, so. Literally coming out of our ears. Right. Even with the headphones on, the money is still coming out of our ears. So please do consider submitting something. Just check in with us. Yeah. Send us a note, and we'll see if we can make room for it. Yeah, just send us an email to info at aca-media.org. So uh, as we're wrapping up here, I was wondering, Chris, if you have uh, any thoughts about uh, TV that you're watching or new stuff that you're doing? Yeah, I had sort of a different take on our usual what are we watching scenario. And what I'd like to do is actually advocate for watching TV on Twitter, meaning you don't actually watch a show, you just watch people tweeting about that show. And I've got two examples for you. Um, Example one, Two Broke Girls. And I don't know if you're aware of this or our listeners are. Jeffrey Sconz has elevated live tweeting to the performance art level with his (laughs) Two Broke Girls tweets. And the thing is, he basically just tweets what's going on in the ridiculous plots and relays the jokes, the vulgar raunchy, ridiculous jokes. Um, And when you read his tweets, you can scarcely believe this is a real show. So I actually did watch the real show on Monday, and it was absolutely unbearable. Um, I can literally never watch it again. But the funny <laughs> but thing is, well, no, that's the thing. The, the jokes that made my skin crawl when I saw them um, delivered by an actress who looks like she might be inclined literally to like leave the set halfway through episode taping. She's like literally looking out to the wings. I think she wants to escape, um, which are just then, cr- you know, they're so raunchy. It's just cringeworthy. But they're absolutely hilarious when stripped of what little context there is via Sconce's signature um, kind of these are really the jokes folks style. Um and so I really think the only reason to be glad Two Broke Girls exists is for Jeff Sconce's live tweeting of the show. So that's right. my one recommendation. A fine extract. And then my second example is Scandal, right? Very well known mm-hmm. for its tweeting. And typically when you turn to live tweets, it's usually to affirm that everyone else is enjoying or hating exactly what you are enjoying or hating, right? You want to feed off the communal buzz fostered by these stunning TV moments and see your own reactions affirmed. But here's the thing with Scandal for me. I don't watch it, so I don't turn to the tweets for communal affirmative buzz. Instead, what I like is really enjoying envisioning what is going on based on the reactions of others. And in particular, I like to seek out reactions from what has become called black Twitter, um, and especially African-American women watching the show. And there's certainly universality in the, like, holy shit, oh no, you didn't, Shonda, response to Mm -hmm. the show's signature twist. But there's often then an added perspective from viewers with different frames of reference to me that open up uh, fascinating new ways of reading the show. So case in point, the first episode of the season, Olivia Pope's dad delivered to uh, Olivia a speech about how as a black person she would have to work twice as hard to get half as much as a white person would get. And I saw this explosion of recognition in the scandal hashtag feed um, from black people saying they were the very words they'd heard from their own parents and not, of course, that I had heard from my parents. So had I been watching the episode, I think I would have brought a different frame of reference to that. Reading those tweets gave me insights I could have never had on my own. Now, you might wonder why I don't both watch the show and those read those tweets, and I'm honestly not sure. I think maybe while others are watching Scandal on TV for the big plot twist, the twists I'm getting on Twitter are ones tied to cultural voyeurism. And I wonder if my own frame of watching the show would kind of um, almost trump some of those. Um, they, you know, I, I, they, might, they might get filtered through that first, and I just really enjoy seeing that perspective. Um, or I'm just weird and have Twitter addiction problems that well, I should it, it really could be that. look into. Could, um, a question. Yes. Um, do you think that we have Twitter followers who only uh, listen, scare quote, um, to Acamedia on Twitter? I don't know. Maybe that's something I should look into. You might. You might. Or maybe maybe Jeff Scons could like reduce it down to our, our best jokes. Yeah, this is the thing we need. We need Jeff Scons live tweeting Acamedia. We might. we might have to make be more vulgar, though, and have cheap you know, genitalia jokes. And yeah, stuff we could work on that. that. Okay, here, here, check this. Why did the... On a serious note, though, there's something really interesting, I think, about um, that... That Can we call it a viewing practice? Um, or it's I would certainly like a to, reception but... practice of right. some sort. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of an interesting exercise in context, right? Which is what we're constantly struggling to do. I mean, we've, mm-hmm. we've long accepted the idea that the text is not the beginning or the end 
of, mm-hmm. of a conversation about, you know, what something means or how it works. And especially when we start thinking historically, mm-hmm. there is so much about a text that is, that is so elusive. Um, and so the fact that you're, you know, that your gateway into this show is this through this very particular community in a very particular place. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it totally makes sense that that would lead to some more interesting insights than that than you might get from just watching it. Yeah, well, and when you think about our teaching, and particularly, this is for film as well, but especially for teaching, because there's so many more texts, you may have seen Mm -hmm. only one episode of a show that you're teaching, and especially, as you say, in TV history, you know, I'm teaching I Love Lucy, and I've seen, you know, maybe only a handful of episodes. Do I want to admit that? Sure. Okay. Um, But (laughs) that, you know, and so part of what we do is try to make assumptions about things we haven't seen, and then literally we have to teach them to people. We have to educate others on what those texts are like without having seen them. It's sort of part of what we do in our jobs. And even when, you know, we pick what we think is the most representative text, but then we're constantly filling in gaps and saying, okay, but that character actually becomes more like this. And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, like I was just, I was just teaching the Mary Tyler Moore pilot, um, in which Ed Asner, you know, Ed Asner's character, Lou Grant is just, he's just a kind of, he's slightly lovable, but he's mostly a lush. Mm -hmm. He is just bombed through most of the episode. And that's the entire way he's set up. And of course, then you're going to be like, okay, well, he becomes this much more avuncular figure and mm-hmm. um, ultimately, you know, responsible, heart of gold, et cetera. And, right. Uh, filling in gaps. Yeah. And so it's an interesting factor where, so first of all, I don't always need TV to enjoy TV if I have Twitter around. And then we don't always have TV to teach TV. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right, so we'll definitely be back next month, no matter how weird our dreams get. That's and right. Whatever snow globes we end up seeing, we're going to be back next month. Yes, we will. And I'll have a piece. I'm working on one about SIG, special interest groups within SCMS, and so I'll have that for you all next month. And I'm working on some interviews, uh, really drawing attention to a really interesting turn in this last issue of Cinema Journal, where there's a lot more prominent attention to sound and music studies, which mm-hmm. we think is a really terrific uh, development. Yeah, I don't know why, but maybe sound really stuck in our head. Yeah, you know, maybe we're getting audio to Audio and I don't know. There's something, I don't know. Something, something in my dream. Sound was really important, too, so... Acomedia is produced with the support of ISLA at the University of Notre Dame and the Department of Communication at Denison University... Also at Denison, we'd like to thank Jill Meisner, who helps us put together the fantastic show notes, which you will find on our website at aca-media.org. Also there, you can find a link to our Facebook group. That's in the About Us page, which also features the rotating Not Michael Kackman picture, which you uh, all must check out. And you can also follow us on Twitter at aca underscore media. And we'd also like to thank Bill Kirkpatrick and Todd Thompson for their uh, producing help. I really want to draw attention to Todd Thompson's kaleidosonic expertise with that last episode. Absolutely could not have done it without without his hard work. Definitely. And thanks also to the participants in this episode, Mary Beltran, Jennifer Proctor, and the UFVA participants. And thank you to SCMS and Cinema Journal. See ya. See you next month, we hope.